This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, November 25th, 2021. I'm Caleb Brown. It's Thanksgiving. It's time to put aside our petty squabbles, our half-remembered statistics that prove we're right and everyone else is wrong, and our less-than-totally-baked opinions, and just enjoy the togetherness of family. On the other hand, if you must insist on having arguments, here are a couple ideas to get that Thanksgiving table quickly overturned. Inflation and mask mandates. I spoke with economist Michael Munger last week, and happy Thanksgiving. As we record this, I am planning on dropping my kids off with my mother and going on a special baby moon with my wife for Thanksgiving. And um, we are free, we feel free to discuss whatever we like for Thanksgiving. You will have a different situation at your Thanksgiving um, with some reasonably new people, I suppose. And what will you be avoiding uh, when you sit down to talk about uh, various things at Thanksgiving? One of the advantages of being a parent is that there's no statute of limitations on your ability to embarrass your children. So one of my children is uh, 32. He's a professor at Penn State. Uh, The other one works in commercial real estate. Uh, But I'm still capable of embarrassing both of them. And we have hostages this time because both of my sons are going to be bringing their girlfriends to uh, Thanksgiving. Um, And it's embarrassing enough to meet someone's parents, particularly at Thanksgiving time when you're eating and perhaps drinking too much. I worry that around the United States, uh, at Thanksgiving tables, there's going to be a real attempt not to talk about masks vaccines, climate change. So a lot of the things we've worried about for a while, but this time, for the first time in a very long time, there's a new subject that has come up, and that is inflation. Not just prices increasing, but prices increasing across the board. So what, uh, for for young people, I, I remember seeing a meme on Twitter of uh, a, you know, a wide-eyed young woman uh, and the Uh, Caption was, young economists seeing inflation in the wild for the first time. So for for people who haven't experienced it, for young people who haven't experienced it, what what are some misconceptions that are common about what inflation is, what it isn't, and how we should respond to it? There are a few subjects that make me feel more old than talking about inflation to young people because the Federal Reserve tried – in ways that should have succeeded, I thought, to produce inflation. So uh, for those of you who are too young to remember and have never used a cell phone to make a call, let me try it. Because cell phones are things that we use, after all, to text and watch cat videos. I understand that. So if you've never used a cell phone to make a telephone call, you've also never seen inflation. Inflation is a generalized rise in the price level, not, oh gosh, gasoline is expensive, or damn, the rents are really high in San Francisco. That's not inflation. Inflation is an across-the-board increase in the price level. And when I was in graduate school, we thought that inflation was always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon, which is a quote from Milton Friedman. Now, what we saw between 2009 and 2011 was that the Federal Reserve was increasing the money supply by about 10% per month, and there was no inflation. So inflation is just a thing that old people talk about. It's not possible to have it anymore. And so that's why the meme of the 
look of astonishment. Can, can that happen? Are they allowed to do that? So I think that inflation should not be, if I can be serious for a second, inflation should not be confused with an increase in the price level that is the result of scarcities in the supply chain. That's the market system working in the way that it should, because it's saying y'all need to figure out ways to get things to people who want to buy them faster. That's not inflation. But it may happen that we start to see inflation. And if we do, honestly, we're screwed. <laughs> so screwed, uh, How do, what does that mean? Uh, you say screwed what, when people are trying to make plans for their lives. What is in, how does inflation stymie that? Famously, John Maynard Keynes in 1919 said that inflation was actually a way that governments destroyed the wealth of their population. And the reason is if you're holding cash or if you have some fixed income asset or if you're on a pension that's fixed, if inflation goes up, it dramatically increases your wealth. And obviously, if prices go up by 10%, you've lost 10% of your wealth if, if it's something that's fixed income. So that's very significant. The difficult thing I would say is that if inflation happens at a level that affects nominal interest rates, and I, this is a little bit complicated, we haven't thought about it for a long time, interest rates are bound to be the sum of the real interest rate, which has been kept historically and I would say artificially low by the Federal Reserve, and the inflation rate, which is your expectation of how much you'll have to be compensated in order to loan money at all. If, given the size of our deficit, if the yields on treasury bonds go to 6 or 7%, we're screwed and we may default on the debt. So the thing that I think people have not talked about yet is given the giant overhang that the U.S. has in debt, the accumulated deficits that we've had, and it's been very ecumenical, Democrat, Republican, it doesn't matter, let's blow up the deficit. We have to be able to finance that by borrowing more. We have no plan for taxes. The only way that we can finance that is by borrowing more. If the interest rate goes up, even by a little bit, we're, to use the technical economist's word, screwed. There's another quote uh, or another, maybe another portion of that quote from John Maynard Keynes when he talks about inflation as this thief of wealth. I believe he says something to the effect of, and not one man in a hundred can identify the cause. Sure. And that's absolutely right. 2011 and 2012, I was telling everyone who would listen that we were on the verge of giant inflation, given the actions of the Federal Reserve. So I'm the not one person in 100 either, because I clearly was wrong about the causes of inflation. Turns out that the Federal Reserve was able to increase the money supply at a rate that was just astonishing. And we actually ran into another thing that John Maynard Keynes talked about, which was the liquidity trap. That is, you can pump people's pockets full of money, but if they don't spend it, it doesn't cause inflation. Or if you pay uh, interest on reserves that banks are holding. And if you get corporations to have large cash reserves by, in this case, having the Fed add to their balance sheet corporate debt. Usually what happened was that the Fed would buy treasury bills. The Fed has been buying corporate debt. 
And the result is that a lot of corporations have used that to buy back their stock. Now, I don't blame the corporations for doing that, but the fact that inflation has not appeared until now has been remarkable. It's not clear. There's been a a sort of come to Jesus moment recently from a number of people on the Fed because they've been saying this is transitory. This short running, this is this price increase is transitory. Well, if it's not transitory, we're in for a rough time of it. Transitory is a word that is being abused, it seems, uh, in the discussions about inflation, or at least it's being widely misunderstood. Uh, the better term from uh, Cato's Nick An- Nicholas Anthony, uh, he says episodic. That is, the inflation may well be episodic to the episode known as COVID-19. Sure. And so Milton Friedman said inflation is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon, which means that what we're seeing as a result of COVID-19 is not inflation, even though it is a pretty broad increase in the price level. What it is is a signal that we need to figure out supply chain issues, and it gives you an incentive to do it because the price of solving that is enough to produce large profits. So it's arguably not inflation at all. If it's episodic, we're okay. I wonder if it is something that's neither episodic nor transitory. There actually is a lot of money on the sidelines. And so the the liquidity trap, also, you can unwind it. If people say, it is time for me to spend down these cash reserves, you can get inflation. And fairly recently, Zimbabwe, a number of countries in South America also have seen inflation rates of more than 100%, which means that you lose 50% of your fixed wealth every year. I have seen a lot of op-eds, a lot of statements from, as far as I know, people who either ought to know better or ought to know better than to comment. Uh, James Sirwicky was one of them at NBC News. Another uh, columnist at The Intercept wrote uh, another column. And they're, they're offering variations on the theme of don't worry so much about this inflation, uh, going so far as to say, don't worry about this inflation because it will punish the wealthy more. I have seen some of those also. And that's another thing probably not to say at Thanksgiving if you're hanging out with your wealthy uncle, because you know it's okay if our wealthy uncle gets pounded by inflation. In fact, the wealthy... I don't see why anyone thinks inflation is likely to punish the wealthy. What's going to happen is that it's going to punish people who have trouble holding liquid assets. Liquid assets will increase in value at about the same rate as inflation. So if I own a lot of real estate, I'm good. If I have some bonds that I squirreled away a little bit of money and bought, I'm going to get hammered. Now, there is one big upside, and that is mortgages. One of the things that we saw in the early 1980s was a gigantic transfer from creditors to debtors because the net amount that I was paying on my house was so small that you you get the savings and loan crisis, you get a, a bunch of financial problems. But here's the problem that I think people don't recognize about the poor, which is why I don't, it really pisses me off when I see the thing, well, it's only going to affect the rich. In fact, the rich can pay off things. The poor have mortgages that are variable. These are variable rate mortgages. And so if inflation goes up, the amount of their mortgage might go to 12 or 14%. We actually had, I bought a house in St. Louis in 1981. We had an 18% mortgage. That makes a gigantic difference in the amount of your mortgage payments. And so it's the poor 
who have variable instead of fixed mortgages that are going to be hammered by inflation. Let's shift gears a little bit here. And uh, masking is another topic that has been um, <laughs> with us for uh, some time. And uh, you, know, you have a lot of parents showing up at school board meetings, uh, arguing, saying, you know, free our children from these masks. You have urban areas like Washington, D.C., where I am now, where pretty much to a man and to a woman indoors in non-restaurant or bar settings are wearing masks. And, uh, you know, wasn't that many months ago that people outdoors were wearing masks. As far as I can tell, the evidence on masks being effective at reducing the rate of transmission of COVID-19 is maybe 10 percent. And then this is all very sketchy. Uh, you know, partial data. But that 10%, it's not nothing. And it's also not the panacea that uh, a lot of public health officials would like us to believe that it is. I have been yelled at when I was wearing a mask inside with a lot of other people to take it off because it shows that I was on the wrong political side. I have been yelled at outside in Washington, D.C. for not wearing a mask, walking down a street. Someone said, hey, put a mask on. What's wrong with you? Don't you hate you hate children? I, I'm, I'm outside. I'm walking on a, a breezy street. So I think one of the things that's interesting is the extent to which this has become a sign of which political side you're on. Uh, and it has absolutely nothing. Well, let's be fair. The reason that it's an important political signal is that it has nothing to do with the evidence. I think that there are people who have not worn masks in a setting where it might have made sense. And there's a lot of people who want us to wear masks in a setting where it makes no sense at all. So the in terms of the evidence, I think it's difficult. The Unless you're wearing an N95 mask and there's absolutely no leakage, the, so cloth masks. The effect is probably negligible. Maybe 10% is enough to make a difference because it slows the spread. And if you're going to be in a large group of people, so I'm not an expert on masks. I do know that the level to which the game theorists talk, talk about this as being a costly signal. It is precisely the fact that the evidence is not clear that makes the decision to wear a mask or not wear a mask the sort of thing that's going to cause trouble at Thanksgiving. Right. And but but the trade-off that is being made in deciding to wear a mask in any given setting or not wear one, uh, that is a trade-off in a way that only individuals can make, uh, even if they're making that trade-off for some for someone else. You just hate America. <laughs> <laughs> the the point is that yes, only individuals should make this. And if you're the right kind of individual, you'll do what I think is right. So the of course that's right. That's it is precisely the fact that you know you're taking this way too seriously is the reason to take it seriously. <laughs> but to the extent that public officials have responded to this, uh, you have Texas Governor Abbott, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, uh, Arizona Governor Doug Ducey. They've all taken largely divergent paths in in uh, giving the private sector either a very wide berth 
to make decisions for themselves. Oh, and I, I should add, uh, Muriel Bowser uh, here has has uh, gone the other direction in saying uh, you, this is not a trade-off you get to make. But the governor of Texas and Florida have said this is not a trade-off that you get to make. And they've gone in different directions. But at the same time, they're they're basically imposing one set of preferences on everyone. Well, I I've, I have been proud that many of my friends on the left have discovered freedom of contract. So when the when the governor of Texas says private businesses are not allowed to require masks, now all of a sudden my friends on the left are all 14th Amendment. No, no, you have to allow private businesses to do what they want. Well, where was that when we were making cakes in Indiana? You know, for the average family sitting down, what is the unassailable thought that they all should bear in mind uh, when they inevitably are arguing about uh, – whether or not masks ought to be a required uh, element of life uh, in public. I expect peeking out the window saying, oh, hell, cousin Francis and Jane are coming and they're wearing masks outside. You know how they are. Well, should we put our masks on? No, heck with them. Or vice versa. They're not wearing masks and they're coming inside. So I think this is going to happen looking out the window when people get out of the car. What sort of symbolic representation are you making of the position that you are going to take, which will become entrenched when you're trying to stuff dressing into your mouth or dress stuffing into your mouth uh, around a mask? Are you going to take off your mask at dinner? People just won't come. Fair enough. But a lot of these things, um, a lot of people would tell us these things hinge on data. And no. if we have enough data. They, they, they will tell you that. Sure. Yes, they it, will it, tell you that. <laughs> they will tell you these things hinge on data. And once we have the data, in quotes, scare quotes. The science. The science will tell us what That's right. That's right. So, and and for a lot of folks, that is, that's the that's the end of the conversation or it ought to be. Uh, dispositive with respect to whatever you you are arguing at the table. And each of them will have some, to them, thoroughly convincing science that they will cite. Some half-remembered thing they read in a something on the internet or that was a Facebook video. So the I, I think, in a way, it's sort of cool that someone that does what I would like to think is evidence-based public policy analysis it's actually sort of cool to see people citing evidence. So people sitting around at Thanksgiving arguing about evidence, and none of them really have any idea what they're talking about. Well, but let's assume for the moment that the, the person sitting across from us or across from our listeners is somebody who is well apprised of the relevant data and has come, a, come to a conclusion having looked at that data about what policies should be set based on that. Uh-huh. Does that does that change what you have to say? Well, um, suppose that their policy is: I think this should be left up to individuals because they're the best judge of their own situation. Well, nobody's going to like that. No right? one is going to like that. Which are so are the, you, you? You say that you're, uh, you're you're going to be going off for Thanksgiving yourself. I can see why, given your heretical views. <laughs> Michael Munger is an economist and political scientist at Duke University. We spoke last week. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast pretty much anywhere and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.